This is Leaders Lens, the show that reveals what it really takes to become a great leader. I'm Jacob Espinoza, a Fortune 500 leadership consultant and director of career success at Workweek. Let's go. I've seen over all these eight years sort of three common mistakes that founders make that prevent them from scaling. The number one is if uh, the founders say, okay, I'm not going to be the one selling, I'm going to delegate it to someone else. Or if they think they're selling, but they're in fact advocating, which is a big difference. So the second one is ignoring the golden rule from Paul Graham, the founder of Pi Combinator, which is do things that don't scale. And then the third one is not constructing the right traction channels. We are back at the Leaders Lens podcast, and we are joined by the one, the only, Julia McDonald. Julia, we are pr- so grateful to have you on the Leaders Lens podcast. I've had the, uh, the fortune to get to know you via Twitter. I've seen you grow your audience from zero, pretty much. I think I, I met you on like one of your first days on Twitter, or feels like it at least, um, to now to 20,000. And I really feel like the value that you bring, your ability to connect with people, and also just a willingness to share from your experience is, is just an incredible combination of skills. So I've been so excited that you were able to make time to be, be on the podcast today and, and share some of your journey on LinkedIn Live. So Julia, thank you so much for being here. This is a big deal. Thank you so much, Jacob. Um, it's completely likewise. So I have been reading Le- Leaders Lens for a while and actually sort of mimicking and shadowing your account on Twitter for so many months before I was able to sort of start replicating some of those best practices and learning from you has been such a huge part of my journey. It's an incredible honor to be a participant now in one of your podcasts to share a topic that's so near and dear to my heart because I've been helping startups scale for over eight years and I've seen a lot of repetitive mistakes and I'm hoping by sharing this experience, some founders might be able to avoid it. So uh, this is awesome. I love it. I'm, I'm excited. You have so much to, to share. So today we're going to talk about common mistakes that prevent founders from scaling. And Julia, what are the three most common mistakes that you see that prevent founders from scaling their business? So I've seen over all these eight years sort of three common mistakes that founders make that prevent them from scaling. The number one is if uh, the founders say, okay, I'm not going to be the one selling, I'm going to delegate it to someone else. Or if they think they're selling, but they're in fact advocating, which is a big difference. So the second one is ignoring the golden rule from Paul Graham, the founder of Pi Combinator, which is do things that don't scale. Uh, and often founders do that without realizing that they're doing it. So that's an important one to bring up. And then the third one is not constructing the right traction channels. So the channels that really bring you those leads, um, those customers in a correct way to maximize the growth. I love it. So if you know a founder that needs some help, tag them in this video because I promise they're <laughs> going to get a lot, of, a lot of value from it. Will do. So let's dig into the first. So really, I've seen two kind of types of situations with the first. The first situation is founders say, I'm not the right person to sell. I'm not a salesperson, you know, I'm an engineer. That is a big mistake initially because nobody understands a product, especially a technical product, better than the founder initially. It's a new innovation, so the founder has the vision and his conviction in a product is essential to getting those first customers. Plus, this feedback that he's getting from those first customers is essential for the iteration of the product. So if you hire someone to go out and sell something for you before you realize how to sell it, 
you're interrupting this huge improvement cycle that you as a founder need to undergo before the product is ready for the mass audience. Another thing that I've seen in this first bucket is when the founder, you know, they will approach a prospect and they'll say, hi, Jacob, I'm building this amazing um, product, you know, it's going to change the world. I'm using these innovative technologies, etc." And what they hear in return is, oh, great, you know, Julia, you're doing awesome, you know, go Julia. There is a lot of this support motion that founders often believe means, you know, Jacob, you're going to buy my product tomorrow. And then after I actually release it, you know, I could be kind of surprised that nobody, you know, is putting their credit card down. So one thing that I advise founders to do is have these very straightforward conversations with your prospects. Say, you know, Jacob, can I have your credit card? Uh, will you buy my product for price X? Will you sign an LOI? Now, that is a real indication that you're going to actually purchase my product. What are the reasons you feel like people miss this step? And they try to delegate it or they feel like they're selling, but they're actually advocating. Like, what are, what are some of the mindset shifts you have to coach people through as they're making this change? I think there is one mindset that selling is sort of bad. People don't want to come across as the salesperson. Another thing is just plain fear of rejection. So if I come out to you and I cut to the chase and say, Jacob, will you give me your credit card and purchase a product? And you say no. I'm in this you know, scary situation, right? I have to deal with the rejection. I might feel like I've lost your respect. This is like an awkward moment. It's way simpler for me to come to you and say, listen, I'm building this cool product. You know, it's just a relaxed conversation. Unfortunately, I don't get out anything out of it. So really it's stepping through these fears and adopting the mentality that selling is good. You know, in a way, uh, you are helping your clients make a decision. You're not persuading something, you're throwing something down their throat. You are helping them make a decision that will help them. If, and then you have to overcome those fears and those rejections to get to the point where people are buying your product. There's no going around it. I think it connects really well to the, the first point you made as well that if you're not selling, you're not going to be getting that direct feedback from people. And if you're just letting people off the hook and saying like, yeah, I like your product, assuming they're going to buy from you, there's not that opportunity for them to actually tell you the roadblocks that are getting in their way or the concerns that they have that are going to prevent them from actually making that purchase. And that's often part of the fear too. You know, if I tell you, hey, would you buy my product and you give me your honest feedback, which is, you know, under no circumstances would I buy this particular version I have to live with it, right? I, this is my baby. I'm putting all my effort into it. So people, I think, sometimes avoid these conversations, even if they don't realize it, which is like a, a big issue. The second piece there with the conversion is just being able to teach your next employee as well how to actually overcome the objections. If you've gone through the steps, you've seen it work, you can speak to confidence that this works because it's happened in the past. You have an experience and a track record there as opposed to just assuming or hoping, where sometimes you're not able to speak quite as confident. Or if you do, then people feel like maybe this person is being dishonest with me because I'm trying this and it's not working, but they're saying that it worked well for them. So I think that's that's awesome. How would you define advocating and selling? Like, how, there's, I think there's some subtle differences between the two. I'm curious to hear how you would, you would define each. Advocating is more having, you know, more and more like informing someone it's an inherently relaxed conversation where people are 
willing to support you, which is extremely common in Silicon Valley. Almost nobody will tell you, hey, this is a terrible idea, which is a good thing, right? But it's not helpful for sales. And so if you find yourself in this pattern of, hey, I just want to share this, it's, it's more like in the tone of conversation rather than the firm definition. Hey, I just want to, you know, let you know what I'm up to. I want to grab in coffee and just tell you what my latest thing looks like. The prospect doesn't realize that they are the prospect. They only want to support you. Versus a sale is being very straightforward, saying, I consider you might be, you know, a great fit for our product. Can I pitch to you? Can you tell me honestly if you would buy it? Beautiful. I love it. So let's move on to the second. Doing the things that do not scale, which really hits home for me because over these last couple of weeks, I've gotten behind in replying to responses to my email newsletter. So I have like 200 responses that I need to reply to and I'm committed to getting it done this weekend because I know how impactful that step is. So just taking the time. If somebody's responding to me and the email I'm sending out, like I, I really, from the bottom of my heart, want them to know how much I appreciate it and how much it means to, means to me. But I haven't been showing that. I haven't been doing the things that don't scale. What are some other examples of things that do not scale and why is it important for founders to take this step? For sure. And I want to say, Jacob, you are the most responsive person I have probably met in my life. So I appreciate no that. worries there. Okay, okay. You, talk to, you talk to people that reach out as I did with like 100 followers on Twitter and being like, hey, can I chat with you? And that's pretty much unheard of, honestly. So yeah, but I think in the tech world, this takes a little bit of a more extreme form and it's quite subtle because founders believe that they're doing the right thing. It's not a conscious process sometimes. I've observed it just over a lot of iterations. So here's an example. So imagine um, you know, a technical founder is coding a product you know, at, in a college dorm room, for instance, it's a typical situation. And they believe, you know, other coders, you know, would love that this product. So often what I'll see is they will say, okay, now I'm going to do this cold outreach via LinkedIn. I'm going to reach out to all these people and I'm going to try to convince them to purchase. And then, you know, I'll have a call and I'll say, listen, you live in a dorm full of 400 potential customers that are for your friends. Why don't you buy some beer <laughs> and go and be like, hey, man, you know, do you like my tool? Right. So it's extremely low hanging fruit. And what they will reply is like, well, but those are not, you know, real customers. Those are my friends. How do I know that they will scale? And uh, I can't, you know, just imagine that I'll always be in this situation. And that's a fundamental problem in thinking because a newborn startup is like a baby. What works for a newborn startup doesn't work for a big startup. And this shift will come gradually, right? You can't imagine that your newborn baby will walk and talk in just a few short months because we are really bad at imagining exponential growth. So the fact that you're selling initially to your friends, you know, in, in, in a college dorm doesn't mean you'll always have to have this manual process, which will, depends on your relationship. Eventually, you will have a, a LinkedIn generation funnel, you will have a, maybe a sales force of 100 people. But initially, take those manual steps, take the low-hanging fruit, whatever it is, maybe it's your uncle's best friend that's purchasing Call your customers personally after every purchase, send them a note, maybe knock on their door, you know. <laughs> Basically, don't shy away from these manual steps. Those are really crucial for a newborn startup. How does that impact the next steps of the startup? Like when they skip that, how does that impact the future of the company versus the founder that is actually like, I'm going to get my hands dirty and get in the weeds? Like what's, what are the differences we can anticipate? I think it gives the founders 
sort of a false sense of data, especially in the negatives that, you know, their startup is, is not needed and they'll never overcome this hurdle. I think a great example was Airbnb. You know, initially the founders, they would rent out their own couch. They would go and post, take pictures manually, post it to their friends. If those guys Im- immediately set the goal as, you know, a global company that people who have never heard of them come and book and, and they would try to sell to complete strangers or even ask them to open up their house for guests, they would think, okay, there's never going to be a market. By starting with this manual small process, they got the data that they needed to validate. So yes, skipping this step can be fatal for a company. Let's move on to the third. They mismanage their trajection channels. What, what does this mean and how do they prevent it? This is especially crucial for B2C companies, but also for B2B companies. You can imagine that those days you can generate your prospect or leads through a lot of different channels, right? You can, let's say in world of world of marketing, you could run Google ads, you could send emails, you could do TikTok, uh, you could do all of those things. And just to clarify, traction, I think I had an autocorrect error when I wrote this down. So I, I was like, what is a traction channel? I was trying to like, <laughs> I'm going to learn something new today. Okay, sorry about that. But traction channels. Yeah, 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 for sure. So... The mismanagement comes in two forms. Um, the first, I think, most common form is, so a CEO will commit to like five or six or seven traction channels at the same time, and then all of them will fail. <laughs> and then they'll be like, okay, again, getting the wrong validation. So mastering one traction channel, whether it's Google Ads or you know direct cold calls or something like TikTok, it's a huge process, right? We know Twitter is just one traction channel and we know how much effort we put into it. So if I, as a CEO, and I have operations and fundraising and team management, and I also try to do content marketing, I need to block because I'm a CEO, right? I need to do Google Ads. Everyone's telling me Google Ads is great. I need to do direct sales. And what happens is I just devote so little time to each of these channels that none of them work. And I'm like, okay, this is my product. It's bad because I've tried seven channels and none of them work. Where in reality, you know, in Twitter, we post 50 threads and the 60s part of it works. So you need to give it way longer time and you need to focus on one, maybe two. And then the second side of the coin is founders will ignore traction channels that are sort of uncool. For instance, um, an app selling to drivers will say, hey, radio is like old fashioned. I don't care about radio. I'm going to do, you know, fancy TikTok ads. And I'm like, okay, it really doesn't matter whether something is cool, trendy, or in the news. What do you need is to you need to reach your audience. That means you have a person distributing flyers because that's where you convert your people. Go for it. Like really give it some thought of where your customers are hanging out. Maybe print ads is the way that you get them, right? That's great. I think uh, something I always remember Gary Vee saying is it's where the attention is underpriced. Like wherever you can get the best value to get in front of your audience, that's where you should be. It's not about like what's new and hip because if it's new and hip and people are getting to it, it's probably more expensive because a lot of people are talking about it right now. There's probably some hidden gems out there and that's, that's phenomenal advice. How do you, how do you, how do founders find those? Like, how do you, how do you help a founder find an avenue that's going to work well to get attention for their business? That's a great question. So initially I think it's just a brainstorming session where you write down all the traction channels. There is a great book by, Gabriel Weinberg, I think he's a the CEO of DuckDuckGo. And he uh, just lists like 19 or 20 channels that people usually forget. So it's good to just put them all out in a whiteboard. 
And then what I recommend people do is basically trace their customer's journey, maybe different personas. Okay, where do they hang out? You know, is it somebody that's using their mobile phone to hang on, you know, TikTok like Gen Z is doing? Or do I use, you know, Safari? You know, what do I do next? What magazines do I buy? And then you connect that customer journey to those traction channels. Now you have sort of maybe five or six. And then you want to assess the customers that are specifically closest to buying. So maybe there are a few personas who are already, you know, expressing the pain strongly and link them ideally to a specific traction channel. So for instance, in Facebook, if you can narrow your demographic to people who have purchased different types of running shoes in the last two months and you're selling some really innovative running shoes, then this particular ad type might get with the people that have this pain point because they keep trying to get the perfect ideal pair of running, running shoes. And then once you have these like narrowed down channels, just giving them at least three to four months of testing. And here we, the lean methodology comes to play. How can I test a channel with a thousand bucks, right? Let me just run a few ads. Let me maybe put one, you know, print ad and see how it works. Beautiful, beautiful advice. I think you're, you're so good at, at speaking to the details of a big picture which is just such a valuable resource when you're teaching and, and helping people get better. And whenever I, I see your content, I just I just know you're coming from the right place of really just wanting to help out your audience, wanting to help people get better. Also, I feel like on Twitter, I'm gonna, I wanna talk about Twitter a little bit with you because that's where we, we've kind of known each other and we know some of the same people. I feel like there is just like this incredible group of people that are in the world of leadership development that are all very supportive of each other. And we've kind of found each other through different pockets, but I feel like everybody is out there, like honestly hoping the people around them win. And also these people are rising to the top because that's just what wins right now on social media. Like people want to be part of that type of energy. So when you see people supporting each other, I feel like those are the creators that are, are being elevated and get more, get more attention. Um, what, what have you learned as you've gone through this Twitter journey and you're right now just on an, an exponential growth path? I think the last couple months have been a little bit funky because of the, like some of the algorithm changes and things, and things that worked well in the past haven't been working as well. Um, but what, what have you been learning recently? I'm curious to hear. So first thing that I learned, maybe a little counterintuitive, but I've learned that, you know, just putting myself out there, um, not in one-on-one -on -one conversations, but, you know, in front of many people, it's less scary than I imagine. <laughs> so for everyone out there right now that, you know, you're thinking, okay, you know, I will never be doing any social media because that's just not who I am. It's a really transformative experience because once I start tweeting about it, I have a huge sense of gratitude and, and, and being able to help someone because people write me, oh, this is what I was hoping to hear today. And I'm like, it just changed my, my day. You know, it affected me better than people I'm kind of writing to. And then I learned that by tweeting, I get all these connections and friends that I would otherwise never find because those are people, you know, from the whole world that are doing such different things. There's like a journalist that spent seven years in China and then there is somebody who is, you know, a tech director at MIT and there's so and so I am able to connect to extraordinary people that come from different avenues of the world and that's transformative for our perspective of the world, right? We all are shaped. And I'm shaped by the Silicon Valley perspective, which is great and I love it, but I want to connect to people that do just radically different things. So I really recommend it to everyone. 
Absolutely. It's just, it's incredible one market research because you're getting so many different ideas from just different circles that you probably wouldn't be connected with otherwise, um, which is just so powerful, especially where those actually take the time to listen and respond and get to know the people that they're inter interacting with. Uh, but then also just the friendships that form. I really felt like that's the game on, on social media is just being social, being okay, just like putting yourself out there and meeting new people and not with some sort of an objective in mind always. Like if you're, if you're there to grow your business, of course, and it's okay to sell and like, you know, be part of that. But I think the, uh, like the first step is like just building that relationship and getting to know somebody and just understanding the value that people bring. It's just, it's, it's incredible. I agree. I mean, of course we respond better to people who are just genuinely out there connecting. And that's maybe even the majority of people that I've met. So I was really lucky. I love it. And then what are, what are your current traction channels? We talked about that, you know, being the, the third piece for, for founders, but where are you finding the most success right now? Yeah, I mean, it's been quite traditional. So I, you know, work through Twitter and then through LinkedIn. And I also, I advise startups through various accelerators. And that's traditionally sort of been my most successful avenue for growth, like be it Berkeley Skydeck or a few others, because of course those accelerators they sort of do a lot of work for you. <laughs> so they pre-select startups, of course, the best ones that fit their criteria, and then they connect their mentors to the startups that they think they will uh, connect best and provide more value. So during those uh, meetings, I get to talk to people who are generally, you know, looking forward to for my help. And that's like a very rewarding conversation typically. I love it. What's next? What's next for Julia? I'm always excited to hear what people are working on. I am right now mostly working in the marketing area. So helping founders, um, you know, with those traction channels, with scaling, kind of as a fractional CMO. Uh, and then I typically advise founders also from the operations and fundraising perspective, just because I have a lot of experience and it's just like become part of the conversation. So I love it. If you're not already following her on Twitter, make sure you do at Julia underscore M underscore M-A-C. Um, incredible follow, always uh, beautiful insights, and uh, somebody that's always always ready to connect and help people be better. Also does a great job on LinkedIn, so make sure you're following Julia McDonald on LinkedIn as well. We'll make sure we include the link in the show notes. But Julia, I appreciate you so much for being on the, uh, the Leaders Lens podcast. I know our audience will get a ton of value from this. And if you have questions or thoughts, feel free to reach out to us in the DMs. We're always open to respond and help how we can. It's a big deal. We're just going to win everything forever. If you're with Julia and you're with Leaders Lens, you're going to win everything forever. That's, that's what we're focused on right now. People are winning big out there and it's a lot of fun. I appreciate you, Jacob. It's always incredible chatting, whether it's live podcast or, you know, via Twitter, via DMs in any form. Thank you for listening to the show. Don't miss another episode of Leaders Lens and the inside scoop on becoming a great leader. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love Leaders Lens, please tell a friend.